All right. Um, we are starting a new series that we are calling uh, Paradox. Uh, and, um, you know, we live in such a polarizing time. Um, and the, the polarizing time is one in which we are often pressured to have to hold one extreme or the other extreme. Um, and um, I- I'm either pro something or I'm anti something, but I've got to choose a side. I've got to choose an extreme. And uh, this whole polarizing culture in which we are living, I think has found its way into the church. And it not only often divides us, but I think it also derails our mission of showing and sharing the love of Jesus to the world around us as well. Um, Because Jesus... And and this is what we want to see in uh, this series. Um, And this is going to be challenging. I'm telling you right now, this is going to stretch some of us. It's going to aggravate some of us. uh, But I trust that the Spirit of God will use all of that stretching and aggravation to, uh, to move us forward. But Jesus was rarely on one extreme or the other. In fact, Many, if not most of the time, Jesus was paradox. He was both. Um, This morning, uh, we we want to start by uh, touching on the tension of hate and tolerance. Hate. And tolerance. That is a trending issue in our cultural time, and it has been for a little while. And the implication is that hate and tolerance are on two polar opposite ends of the spectrum. And I've got to choose one when it comes to some pretty heavy hitting issues in our time. Hate or uh, tolerance. I either hate something or I tolerate it. If I don't hate something, then I must tolerate that said something. In fact, to prove I don't hate something, I've got to tolerate slash embrace slash celebrate that said something. But in either case, I've got to pick a side, one or the other. And so we often get into places where we must answer the question on border control, hate or tolerate. Gots to pick a side. Let's make things a little more tense. Pro-choice. Hate or tolerate. Because you've got to pick a side. Same-sex marriage. Hate or tolerate. See, it's interesting that some of you are okay with us talking abstractly about hate or tolerate till we introduce the issues. It's going to be fun. So, um, I bring up the issue of hate or tolerate just so that I can say it's a ridiculous polarization that often doesn't matter. In fact, I bring up the issue of hate or tolerate uh, just so I, can, so, so I can say, I reject the question. And I think Jesus would say, don't get caught up in ridiculous polarizations. It will neutralize your mission. And I fear that that's happening in the church a little too often in our day and in our time. But I think that there's a story that illustrates what I'm hoping to convey, um, and it's found in John chapter 8. If you have a copy of the Bible, um, man, turn to John uh, chapter 8. We're going to have the verses up here on the screen for you to be able to follow along here in a moment. Um, John chapter 8. And we're going to start reading at verse 
number two. John chapter eight, verse two. All right, here's what it says. At dawn, he, the he in, in this passage is Jesus himself. He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. Okay, so this story that we're going to look at, it opens up with Jesus teaching in what was not only the the religious epicenter of the time, but it was one of the most public spots in their known world, the temple courts. If you're anyone who cared anything about the God of the Old Testament, you would frequent the temple courts. And so the temple courts were this place that was constantly buzzing with foot traffic with a bunch of religious people gathered around. And this morning was no different. So Jesus is in the temple courts and he's giving one of his famous holy TED talks. He is dropping truth bombs. He is, you know, dispensing truth serum, whatever Jesus did. Um, um, while he's teaching, he is interrupted by the religious experts and teachers of that particular time. And when these religious leaders and experts show up, this story gets super weird slash strange slash freaky. If you were there with your kids, I'm not entirely sure that you would have sat through this experience. Verse 3, teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before that entire group. No, for real. You just read that right. This is Jesus' day at the office. So a woman in that area was at some dude's house and uh, she, they were doing that there wild thing. And um, <laughs> so anyway, apparently with some dude who is not her husband and she gets busted. Like mid-thing is what this Bible verse says. She's in the middle of her most secret sin when these religious leaders, or at least some of their religious cohorts and associates, they bust through the door and they catch her in the act. Yep. They set up a sting operation. And they wait for just the right moment, and then they pounce. And the implication is they don't give her much time to get herself um, decently dressed before they drag her out of the house. They parade her through the streets, and they physically force her to stand in the temple courts, a.k.a. the most religious and most public place in that world. We'll come back to that. But first, I have so many questions. I don't even know where to start with the questions about this story so far. You can have your own questions. I have my questions. Um, Question number one, for instance. What kind of church has a sex spying ministry? That's my question. (laughs) You can ask your questions. Like, when (laughs) when did these religious leaders first sense the calling of the Lord to launch a peeping Tom ministry program in their church? This is weird, man. Let's, the spirit gave me a voyeurist vision to walk in on people. Me too. Let's start this program. <laughs> this is crazy. No, the passage says these religious guys are lying in wait. Until they know the sin has commenced, then they bust in. This is strange. I'm just telling you right now. I don't know what kind of messed up ministry that is. I'm just asking the questions. And another question I have is why all the fanfare? <laughs> 
Like you guys are religious leaders, right? Why parade this woman and all of her shame through the streets and put her in the most public of places to display? Why not just talk to her? Like did anyone say, let's talk to her about this. Why not just talk to her and encourage her to like try Zumba or something like this? But no. A parader through the street in the most public of places to expose the most private of sins. I'm just saying, we all have areas of sin that we struggle with. And if a church ministry launched that was bent on putting our stuff on YouTube. Because that's what the temple courts were. It was the most public place. If you want something to be known, that's where you would tell it. Why the public humiliation? I don't understand that. And also, I'm not claiming to be an expert. I went to school, but not for this. So I'm not claiming to be an expert, but I at least know this much. You cannot successfully commit adultery by yourself. Where is the dude in question? What do you mean the woman was caught in adultery? What kind of religious double standardry applies a rule to one person but not the other? I have questions about that. Was the dude one of them? I don't know. I'm just saying this is really strange. But anyway, I digress. Verse 4. And these religious leaders said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. They even say it. Verse 5, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. This is so messed up on so many levels. One of the things in verse 6 that John whispers to us on the side, one of the things John lets us in on in verse 6 is the fact that this woman was just a prop in an argument. These religious leaders, these purveyors of truth, these guys who seemed to be most concerned about the truth, they set up a sting operation, dragged this woman and her shame in the streets just as a prop. Her life was just a piece of bait to lure Jesus into a theological trap. That's messed up. We don't even care about you. We just needed to smear your life so we could discredit Jesus' ministry. How messed up is it to treat a person like they're just a pawn to prove a point? Not only that, they don't just use this woman's life as a prop, but what becomes clear is they are using the truth of God as a prop. Feel free to sit back and enjoy the irony of that. These dudes are using the truth of God in an attempt to trap the truth of God. Chapter 14, I am the truth. This is so fascinating to me. They quote the truth to the truth, to trap the truth with his truth. Just say, the truth of God says. Jesus is like, oh, pray tell. What does the truth of God say? (laughs) Well, it says that adulterers should be stoned to death. What do you say, Jesus? Because Moses, in the law, Moses, he told us, um, that uh, he, he, he commanded us. And, and so what do you think about that? If Jesus could have looked at the camera, this would have been that moment. They're like, these, 
these guys? Who do you think told Moses to write? You know what? I can't even today. You know what? And for the record, uh, here is the moment they are essentially asking Jesus the first century version of hate or tolerate. And the topic, the buzz topic of the time was adultery. The Bible says adultery is wrong and must be punished by death. Here's a woman who has committed adultery. We found her hate or tolerate Jesus. Pick a side. If you hate this, then you will pick up the stone and you will launch the punishment party. But if you tolerate it like we all suspect you do based on the people you hang out with, then we will expose you as a teacher who doesn't care about the truth. And we will discredit your ministry. So here's the trap, Jesus. Hate or tolerate. Do you stand with this sinner or do you stand for the truth? Hmm. Huh? Good one. We got him. What's he going to say about this one? Which side is he going to pick? And by the way, can I say for the record, if there ever was a time to be culturally apropos, this would have been the moment for Jesus to be like, this is the most public venue. I can take a stand on the issue and side with one or the other. This would have been that moment. This is so great because Jesus is the truth. He only ever always comes through dripping truth. That's all he does. It's all he has because he is the embodiment of truth, which means whatever Jesus is going to do or say is going to be the truth in the interest of the truth. So what does he say? Second part of verse six. But Jesus bent down and he, he started to write in the dirt. He started to write on the ground with his finger. I, Jesus is awesome. The best, matter of fact. He hears the question. We know he heard it. And then he gets down and just starts scribbling in the dirt. And I'm like, teach us to be like you, Lord. Teach us to be like you. Jesus' first response to the polarizing question is something we could all learn from. Silence. I mean, wasn't he teaching just a few moments ago? Wasn't he dropping truth bombs a few moments ago? Wasn't Jesus giving his holy TED talk just a few moments ago? He knows how to speak. Which can only mean this is a calculated response of silence. Why? I think, for one, Jesus is straight up rejecting their construct. Jesus is refusing to play along. He rejects the construct. I don't feel any pressure to have to pick one of your sides. I'm out. I'm sorry, because you created these sides, then I'm supposed to play along and be limited by one side or the other side and and fit into your artificial constructs. He's like, nope. Says who? Who said those are my options? Like, nope. I don't have to pick one of your sides. So excuse me while I ignore you and just write in the dirt. Just silence. That would have been aggravating, by the way. There, again, there are some videos I want to watch. The writing in the dirt may be one of those in, in heaven on VHS or Betamax. I don't know. 
um, in such a polarizing time, I actually think that sometimes we miss the power of calculated silence. This notion that I have to to pick a side as a demonstration that I care about the truth. And so when the opportunity arises and I'm asked to pick one side or the other, frankly, the more public, the better, then I'm going to. Um, Notion that I have to pick a side just so politics and religion and the school kids can know where to place me is crazy. Says who? Nope. This notion that spiritual conviction or or concern about the truth means having and voicing an either-or opinion on the most tense and polarizing topics of our time, moral or otherwise. Mm, Crazy. Because the person who was most concerned, most interested in truth, and who himself was the embodiment of truth, refused to engage in this polarizing conversation. He refused to give in to their construct. He said, no. Silence. Hate or tolerate this adultery situation, Jesus. Now is your chance. Jesus like, I'm out. And can I just say again for the record, Our church today would have booed Jesus for this. You didn't pick a side. You didn't vote one way or the other. What Jesus, this is what the Bible says. Therefore, you have to take Jesus. He's like, no, I reject your constructs. Ah, man. Uh, It wasn't too long ago. Two friends of mine, I realize things are going to get tense here in a second, but two friends of mine um, said to me in a very public context, um, so I am of this gender, true, and she is of the same gender, true, those are facts, yes, you say you care about us, that's true. Um, okay, so according to your Bible, would you perform our wedding? And I was like, no, thank you. I'm out. Silence. And I feel like I need to be more silent more often. I reject your construct. I refuse to answer the question. I changed the topic so fast, I don't think they know to this day I changed the topic. I reject your construct. No, Connor, that's a perfect time to say what the Bible says about. I'm like, no. I refuse to get into that. And you know one of the reasons I rejected the construct? Wait a minute. You mean to tell me? (laughs) that I either care about you or I perform your wedding or I refuse to perform your wedding. Like, that's the position you say. If I care about you, I'll perform your wedding. If I don't say no to performing your wedding, then clearly I don't. I reject that construct. I will not be limited by your artificial and arbitrary parameters. And I think the church, I know there are times I just say way too much because certain topics feel uber key and crucial to take something and and make some statement, um, you know. So, wait, so, but there, so pro life or pro choice? I reject the construct. That's why none of you in here are going to be able to say, Kondo, uh, which of those two? And some of you are mad right now. Like, are you kidding me? That's a clear top. That's a clear one. Perfect up. I reject the construct. 
And you know one of the reasons I reject the construct? Well, I'll tell you because you're sitting here. Um, because I spend enough time to know what you mean when you say pro-choice. And I know way too many people who say they're pro-life, but they're really not. You may be pro-birth. You may be anti-abortion, but pro-life. I've heard the way you talk about other people's kids because they belong to different nationalities, vulnerable as they may be. Pro-life? What do you mean by that? I reject the construct. So I have to choose one or the other because somebody decided these are the two polar extremes? No! I'm out! Now ask me about the sanctity of life. Ask me when I believe life begins. At the moment of conception, that thing is no longer a thing. It is a person that bears the very fingerprints of the living God. And I'm going to reduce that sacred life into a prop for the sake of a polarizing argument. I'm out. Ask me about refugees and vulnerable children. What should we, what should we not But I think we often feel like, no, we have to, 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 to take a stand in the name of truth and give into some human polarizing argument. And I love that Jesus chooses silence. But people hate silence because they want to know whether you're friend or your foe and, and what side you are on. So they pressed Jesus for a response. So he gave them one and they wished they had just accepted his silence. Verse 7. We should have just left then, guys. When they kept on questioning him, because that's what people will do. I need to know which way you vote, though. I need to know what you think about this issue. Jesus straightened up and he said to them, All right, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And you notice he still didn't answer their question. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Verse 8 is so hardcore. I'm telling you, Jesus dropped to the ground like he was the mic. <laughs> this is so savage. This is so savage. Take a stand, Jesus. Take a stand, Jesus. And Jesus says, all right, I'll tell you what I'll do. Since you are all so passionate about the truth, being obeyed, and sin being called out and punished. Okay, let's go with that. Let's call out sin and let's punish it. So, if you have not violated God's truth in any way. If you are standing here and you have not sinned, then you can start the punishment party. Throw the first stone. It's powerful. And Jesus doesn't just reject their construct. I think in this verse, he just breaks the construct by exposing its inconsistency. You are picked the most extreme issues that you believe mattered the most. And then you quoted from the truth. And then you make people have to pick a polarizing side, one extreme or the other. Okay. The thing, though, is besides adultery, there are about 612 other things that my truth says. Why have you chosen this one? Matter of fact, let me remind you of a few other things that my truth says, which is what I believe Jesus was writing in the dirt. You have picked adultery. Let me write a few other sins down here. Woo! Uh, lust. 
that would have been uber tricky. Come on. Can you imagine that one? Lust. Mm. So, this sex spy ministry you guys have that catches people in the act and then drags an underdressed woman down the street and stands her here, scantily clad. If any of you religious brothers have not lusted over this dirty adulteress, throw a stone at her. That would have been ironic, by the way. (laughs) She's an adulteress. And I am committing adultery in my mind right before. This would have been so inconsistent. Jesus would have written lying. Hmm. If you've not massaged or manipulated or exaggerated the truth, then um, go ahead and, and throw a stone. How about gluttony? If none of you have overeaten those figs in the last week, let's say. Go ahead. Throw a stone. Jesus shatters their construct. Who decided which issues are the polarizing issues while ignoring a bunch of other things that I've said. This is such a powerful moment. And then you force us to fit into your extremes. No condo, pick a side. No church, pick a side. About what? About these key issues. Who decided there were key issues and who decided those were the sides? Homosexual sin. Illegal immigration. Right? I mean, those are the buzz topics for us that, that polarize. And the crazy thing is, 15 years from now, it'll be a new list of buzz topics. Because we've decided which things in the truth of God demand us to take a stand and, and we must polarize over them and hate or tolerate these key issues. I wonder if Jesus wouldn't get in the dirt and write in our culture um, gossip. Because you all talk behind each other's backs like it's a hobby. But what does the truth say about the gays? The gays, though. And Jesus is looking at the camera like these guys. Stop acting like you care about my truth. You don't care about my truth. You care about your buzz topics. And now we're supposed to fit into the construct? Jesus is like, I shatter the construct on the basis of its inconsistency. How about Jesus might have written in there, speeding? (laughs) That would have been legit. (laughs) Maybe not in that day and age, but in ours. Because it's occurred to me that you all seem really obsessed about the breaking of the nation's laws down at the southern border. But you're up here going to school on the accelerator in your Buickless Saber. So is it really the law you care about? I mean, can we just be honest? How about overeating? No, the opioid crisis and these addicts, it's destroying our nation. Hate or tolerate? Which side do you pick? And Jesus is like, just how about the Cheetos, bro? Just the Cheetos. The same truth sayer would speak to both. Why have you elevated one of those and built constructs around them? And then you're communicating to the world that I am the truth sayer who cares about certain segments of my truth and not about others. It distorts the mission. 
If our constructs do that, they blur the truth. And one of the ways I think, man, we help to break the construct is oftentimes just through like silence, rebelling. Like I'm not, I don't feel the need to have to rage about the issue that someone has decided matters more than Jesus has elevated it. Verse 9, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. I love that. They're like, hmm, I have lived long enough to know that everything you've listed down there applies to me. I've lived long enough to know that if we apply your truth consistently, stones will start getting chucked in my direction. I'm going home. And the older people left first. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and he spoke to her and he asked, Woman, where are they? Where are all the the haters? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. And he would get booed in our churches. No one's pointing the finger anymore. Neither do I. Go now and leave your life of sin. In this powerful scene, this woman in her sinful shame is here alone with Jesus. Wait, all your accusers, they're gone? Finger pointers, they're gone? It's just you? Yep. No one threw a stone? Nope. No one condemned you? Nope. Well, I don't condemn you either. Now go. Leave your life of sin. By the way, can you imagine this moment for this woman? Seriously? You're not going to call me names? Seriously? You're not going to throw anything at me? Because you and I both know if anyone qualified to pick up a stone, it was the one writing in the dirt. You're not going to throw anything at me? No. You're not going to shame me? No. You're not going to parade me? No. He did not condemn. This is such a powerful scene. Wait a minute. You, you are not going to use me as a prop to make an argument? No. And in that moment, I think the point comes fully into focus. So did Jesus hate or tolerate this sinful woman? Nope. He introduced a new construct. Love. He loved this person. But what's your position on Shut that noise down. I'm going to love this person. For the church, the question Jesus will be most concerned about is not hate or tolerate. The question is going to be, are you all leading with love? That's the question That's going to matter more than any other question. You know the way we know because he says, oh, by the way, this law and this truth that you concern yourself with so much, it is summarized in a simple command. Love. The very thing none of you are doing for this woman right now. And you are pulling me into a construct to debate this woman when none of you have loved this person. Jesus says, I'm out. But there is a better way. Love, that's the construct. 
And it would be a beautiful thing for the church to, to, to rebel against the pressure to live our lives fitting into some political construct or some theological emphasis. When Jesus says, I'll tell you what I emphasize the most. Love the person. And I think he gives us some beautiful clues as to what that might look like for us living in a polarized world. And a couple of quick things. Number one, love sits. Love sits. And you saw that in the beautiful close of this story. When everyone else had left, only Jesus stayed with her. And he has a little chat with this woman. Because again, everyone else treated her like a prop in an argument. Everyone talks about refugees like they're not people. People are talking about pro-life like they are not real human beings who are agonizing, who are hurting, who are being murdered. It's just now a debate and we're supposed to pick a side? Jesus refuses to make props in arguments out of people. He treats her like a person. I'm not interested in making a statement about you. I'm most interested in sitting with you. That's why I came. I I love Jesus' response here. Everyone else cleared out when the argument was over. And when they lost the argument, they're like, all right, on to the next argument. But for Jesus, he stayed and sat with the person. I think too many of us have a strong opinion and strong positions, hate or tolerate whatever about illegals. But when the argument is done, you're out. But have you sat with a person who is here illegally? I say if you're not willing to sit with somebody, don't take any position about this situation. Love. Yeah, we all know your position about abortion, but will you sit with the mom who is haunted by the decisions she made or who is considering it? Will you you sit with the people who are really being affected by these decisions? Jesus sat when everyone left. How amazing for the story to be told that when everyone else cleared out, only the church remained. And we sat with people. Love sits. Love embraces. More than just sitting, Jesus embraces this messed up woman. And this is what's so hard for us in our contemporary culture. This is one of the reasons we should reject the construct. Because when I start to take these polarizing views and think about, well, I have to protect my polarizing views. And so now all of a sudden, if I'm seen with embracing somebody, then I'm going to be accused. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Look at the people he's hanging out with, and I can't do that. So I've got to be true to the construct and no love embraces. Jesus says, I do not condemn you. I embrace you as you are where you are. That's love. Wait, but she's a sinner, Jesus. Yep. But I didn't come into this world to condemn and point the finger at sinners. I came into this world to sit with sinners so I could save sinners. John chapter 3 verse 17. Love embraces people in the midst of their sinful mess. This is what seems to be so hard for so many of us to embrace. That love is not something that is contingent on change. But the construct does that. It demands that you fit a certain place and you change a certain pattern and you start to act a little different and you agree with us a little more. Then we will embrace you. That's not what the love of God does. I don't need you to change for me to love you. But sadly for many of us, we demand change as a prerequisite to embrace. If you are doing that thing or you're struggling in that way, I can't embrace you. First, change. That's not Jesus. And I'm telling you, the world will be changed by a movement of people who don't need them to first change before being embraced. I know who you are. I know where you just came from. I know what you struggle with. I know what you choose. And I love you even if you never change. There is power in that. Wait a minute, but if I love and embrace somebody who, who, who is doing this thing or this issue or that issue, but what if I embrace, you embrace gossips all the time. So stop with that, first of all. You are always embracing people who are sinning, always. But if I embrace people who are struggling with this issue or they're doing this thing, won't that make me tolerant? No, it will make you Christ-like. Because how quickly we forget 
that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How quickly we forget that the gospel begins with God so loved the world. Which world? The messed up, broken world full of people who are rebelling against him. He came and embraced them. And then all of a sudden, we become super sanctimonious and we create these constructs that polarize. And all of a sudden, all those people with those issues become debate points. And we know love embraces. There are people in your family who need to know the love of Jesus through you. I love you here and now. I don't know who needs to know that from you. I'm not demanding that you change. In order for for some of us, our kids need to hear that loud and clear. I've been laboring so long to fit you into a construct so you behave a certain way and you look a certain way and you get a certain job. And if you struggle with this issue, ooh, I don't know. I will love you no matter what you struggle with to the moon and back. That's where the gospel starts. I don't know who needs to hear that from you. This week, but love invites, love invites. Don't get it twisted. If you love, you will invite the person you love to freedom. Love invites. Jesus sits with her and he embraces her as she is, but he tells her, move away from that sin and to freedom. He doesn't condemn her, but he calls her, leave your life of sin. So on the other side, I'm telling you that if, if we go to, to the side where, where we sit with people in places where sin is holding them hostage um, from wholeness, and we don't say anything to them about, come on, come to freedom, come to life, we are not loving them well. This story ends with Jesus inviting her to freedom in himself. And he's not inviting her to freedom so that he will love her. He's inviting her to freedom because he does. This is not a prerequisite. I love you and I know that sin is going to steal and kill and destroy life and I don't want that for you. And so I'm inviting you run into the arms of Jesus so a journey towards freedom might begin. Not so you'd fit into my construct, not so that then I can love you, then you stop being gross to me. But it's because there is joy and there is freedom. And that's what I want to point you towards. Um, I love what Tiberius Ratza is doing here in town at the Community Grace Church in the area. He's sitting with illegal immigrants to help them down a path of legality. That's love. He's not sitting and taking a position about illegal immigration and then letting it be because it's just an argument and they're just props. He's not just sitting with people who are in the country illegally. He's saying, how do we move you towards something? That's why we love Heartline. Heartline isn't picketing in the name of pro-life or in the name of the truth of God. Heartline is sitting with families who are laboring with decisions and saying, we will be for life with you. We will journey with you, but we want to point you towards freedom. It's not just a debate. We want to journey with you. That's why we love all things new. It's not just talking about the opioid crisis. It's coming alongside people who are struggling with this and saying, how can we point you towards freedom and towards the person of Jesus Christ? And that's why we ought to sit with gossips and say, listen, I know, you know, the tea is nice and everything and we're enjoying, you know, dishing and all that. But, um... Can I point you to something more beautiful than this? That's why we'll say to the consumer in the church, do you know that serving is actually what he calls you to? But love invites towards better. I don't know who you sit with who maybe you've been silent when you should be inviting them. Not about taking a position, but inviting them to freedom and joy in the person of Jesus Christ. Team, you guys can come on out. Um, and I just, I, I love the way Jesus breaks the construct. Um, 
And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't answer the question that they want to know, but Jesus, do you hate or do you tolerate? Jesus, what's your position on adultery? Will you at least tell us that? Jesus, what's your position on, 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 on drug use? What's your position on sexual sin, whether it's homosexual or whether it's heterosexual? What's your position on this sin? We, we, we would like to know your position. What's your position? And I love that in the gospel, Jesus ultimately answers the question. I'll tell you my position about your struggle with sin. I'll tell you about my position over that thing that you're keeping in secret and you hope nobody ever televises on YouTube. I'll tell you my position about your struggle, but it's pretty extreme. My position is I hate what sin is doing and I love you so much that I'm going to tolerate death to destroy sin. This is my position and it's pretty extreme. I'm not just interested in making arguments and taking sides. But I'm going to destroy sin so that you have a path to freedom. And if this is Jesus' position towards sin and sinners, this should be the church's posture. Whoever you are, no matter what you're struggling with, we love you and we embrace you and we will sit with you and we will journey with you and we refuse to make your life a prop in some arbitrary construct and argument. No, 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 no. We will sit with you and then we will point you to the one who loved you so much that he was willing to die so that you would experience joy and freedom. There is something powerful in breaking the construct and stepping into the new construct that Jesus introduces that says, love as I have loved you. And so Jesus, I pray that you teach us to be like you. And I pray that more than our protecting our positions, that we would want to walk out of this place and represent you and love people well. And we know at the end of the day, you will ask us about how we loved people. Because Lord, we know that truth is proven not in the positions that we take, but in the love that we show to people. I pray for anyone who is questioning your love for them this morning. That they would encounter a Jesus who sits with them in their shame and then invites them to joy and freedom and forgiveness in himself. And so I pray that if there's anyone in need of the experience of freedom and forgiveness, that your spirit would move. And that we would be those who continually offer freedom and forgiveness as we love people well in the world.